This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Anthony DeGico didn't waste any time in this interview. He went straight for an issue that he feels passionate about. He started things off by saying, Our inability to engage with the history of soccer in this country has led us to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. That's a direct quote from the interview you are about to hear. And it's one of the most important things that Anthony DeGico said. Anthony is well aware that he had a unique upbringing. He was exposed to a side of the game that most of us can only dream about. Those experiences surely shaped his views of the game. I mean, there aren't too many people that can say their dad was a World Cup winning coach, but Anthony is one of those people, along with his three younger brothers. And during the USSF presidential election process, Anthony has started to share his opinions about issues that he feels are important. He honed in on the voting process and the structure with a great article that tried to bring some transparency to a very, very hazy topic. And Anthony has also been advocating for more representation for the female side of the game. This conversation was recorded before there were any females announced as candidates in the 2018 presidential election, but... The points that he continues to make on a daily basis still stand. The women's game has had lots of success, but also a lot of problems. And whether soccer fans are talking about the positives or negatives of American soccer, the men's game continues to get the majority of the attention. And Anthony says this must change. The biggest solution is that people in positions of power have to decide that the best use of their power is to provide a voice for those who have been marginalized through the process. That was another quote from Anthony during this interview. And Anthony believes that the United States has potential to dominate both the men's and the women's side of the game, but he says that we are failing to access the power of soccer. And I agree with him. I think, personally, that the United States is like a Ferrari, but I also think the U.S. soccer boardroom has put a governor on it. The United States has been unable to reach its max potential because of stupid standards and regulations that benefit just one small group of people while locking out the majority of the country from accessing the full benefits that this sport has to offer. Now, Anthony and I talked about a lot of topics that almost never make it to the mainstream conversation. It was great to hear him open up and speak freely, and I really think that you are going to enjoy this episode. And if you do enjoy it, it would be great if you left a five-star rating wherever you are listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And don't forget that you can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And as you hopefully know, this podcast is brought to you by the 343 Coaching Education Program. That is what powers this podcast. 343 offers a free seven-week course and a premium course. The free seven-week course is a great introduction to 343's proven possession-based methodology, and the premium course takes a deeper dive into that methodology with exclusive audio interviews, classroom sessions, training videos, eBooks, and access to the nationwide community of 343 members via the online forums. The 343 Coaching Education Program gives you an inside look at the cutting-edge training methods that are being used to develop pros here in the United States. So if you're looking for a way to support this podcast, 
please, please, please check out one of those programs. That is what powers this podcast and makes this podcast possible. You can find more information about the coaching education program at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers three, four, and three. Coaching, all spelled out, dot com. So 343coaching.com. Okay, with that, let's get into today's episode with Anthony DeChico. Enjoy. What's been your feeling uh, of the of the way that U.S. soccer has kind of operated for the last 20, 25 years? Because you, you kind of grew up in a very unique position, I feel like. You maybe you, you knew people before any of this was happening, so the um, the realities we face in U.S. soccer are not the result of the past year or the past several years. And uh, I listened to your conversations uh, last night and this morning with uh, Eric Winalda and John Mata. Um, very interesting conversations, and, and I always enjoy the podcast, uh, John. So thanks for. Uh, having me on, but the the reality is that soccer in this country has uh, suffered from a uh, non deliberate growth. Right, the, the the first group of people is people who don't realize that soccer existed in this country with any substance before 1996. That's kind of the beginning, or 94, maybe you say with the World Cup. That's kind of the beginning of their relationship with soccer, and then you've got a a group of, of you know people who have been in the game for longer who really see 1989 and Paul Calagari's goal as the advent of the modern era of soccer. But the, the reality is that soccer in this country has a long and storied history, and our inability to uh, engage with the history of soccer in this country has really led us to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And so to, to get to your question, yeah, I, I did have a very unique um, upbringing in that I grew up with soccer in this country. I was born in 1982, and I'm the oldest of the four DeChico boys. So uh, that gave me a front row seat to, uh, you know, today happens to be the, the anniversary of the women winning the first Women's World Cup in 1991. Oh, wow, um, I didn't know that. And, uh, you know... Watching the U.S. win a championship changed the psychology of soccer in this country. And the reason that, uh, you know, the women, you know, are, are really um, kind of our, our, our conscience, the voice of, of reason in so many of the discussions about U.S. soccer is because the women are the model, or at least historically have been, for what we want to be. You know, we want to be world champions and we have been and we can be on the men's side. Um, but there's a there's a long process to get there. And instead of engaging in a deliberate growth model, it's just kind of happened. And now here we are and we got to figure out how to how to pick up the pieces and move on. What what was it like? So uh, uh, forgive me. I, I I need to learn. I need to learn more about you, too. Um and, and and your dad, I, I, I honestly I don't I don't know much about about um, his coaching trajectory or um, actually his, his time with U.S. Soccer. So um, when the women won in 1991, 
where where were you and and how how were you or your family involved in the game at that at that point? So I, I uh, the, we didn't go to China. Uh, our family didn't didn't opt to go to China. Uh, my my youngest brother Nick was actually born in 1991, and he was born in July. And the women's national team uh, took a pre World Cup trip in August to China. Um, Anton Dorrance was the head coach of the team at that time. And uh, Lauren Gregg was the assistant, and my father was a, an assistant and the goalkeeper coach uh, for that team. And then they went back in in November for the uh, for the tournament. And actually, here's some trivia for you: it wasn't called the Women's World Cup that that time. Uh, FIFA hedged their bets and uh, called it the M and M's Cup. They didn't think that the women were worthy <laughs> of the the World Cup uh, banner. They actually uh, changed that for the '95 event, um, but. You know, the, the perspective around the women's game at that time was very uh, was it's almost comical if, it, if it's not uh, disgusting. The uh, the FIFA committee didn't think that the women could play with size five balls. So they proposed playing with size four balls. Uh, they didn't think that they could, that women could handle playing 90 minute matches. So they played 80 minute matches. This is in the uh, M&M's cup. <laughs> this is in the world, the first women's world championship. <laughs> okay. Um, they, they played with size five balls, but they played 80 minute, uh, okay. 80 minute games. But, uh, in the final Michelle Akers scored two goals and, uh, and we beat Norway two one and, uh, and the U S had their first, uh, their first victory as, uh, as world champions. Michelle Akers has kind of popped up. In my newsfeed this last couple, or I think this last week or so, she's been making some noise. Yeah, Michelle just gave an interview with uh, Soccer America, and I thought That's it was right. a, a good interview. Um, you know, Michelle is is an incredible woman, and uh, Michelle is the without any question the single greatest American soccer player uh, to play. And, you know, she was a uh, you know FIFA Player of the Century last oh, wow. century. Um, you know, two-time World Cup champion, Olympic champion, and and pioneer. Um, but when Michelle played, you were playing in her game. Uh, you know, she was she was that dominant. So, growing up, the the ninety the ninety one uh, women's. Uh, I'm struggling what to call it because you can, the World you can Cup. call yeah, yeah, World Cup. has gone back and and you know it's part of the the World Cup record now. It's just that's you know, good. Uh, that's good. You know, at the time they they uh, they were hedging. Yeah, you were you were only like nine years old then, ten years old. Yeah, I was uh, I was eleven when they uh, when they won. Um, so we didn't we didn't go over, um, but we you know we lived it. Um, you know, we were around the team uh, growing up, and then in in 1994, right before World Cup qualifying for the 95 World Cup, uh, Anson uh, resigned, stepped aside, and my father was named um, the the coach of the national team uh, by Alan Rothenberg and Hank Steinbrecher, who were the president and secretary general at the time. And uh, his first uh, his first event was called the Chiquita Cup, which was a regional tournament in uh, new england uh if memory serves new britain connecticut uh worcester massachusetts and i forget where where else uh where else we played games but that was the build-up tournament and then uh they went to montreal for qualifying 
and uh, and then he coached the team from from that point in '94 uh, until December 31st '99. Uh, his contract expired, and uh, he stepped aside um, because he he'd basically been on on the road for um, for most of the decade. And and you grew up in in that Connecticut area, right? I think your Skype name says that you're from Hartford. Yeah, we grew up uh, we grew up just south of uh, of Hartford in a town called Weathersfield. Uh, when my father died earlier this year, he died at home uh, in in the house that he built, uh, which was a half a mile from the house he grew up in. And uh, you know, so we, we were we were always uh, you know proud to be from Connecticut. He was proud of of uh, Weathersfield, his hometown, but. In 95, leading into the World Cup, uh, the team went into residency. And uh, so the whole family moved down to Orlando uh, with dad. And we were there for two years, uh, 95 and 96, before moving back to uh, back up north. If, if you can kind of rewind a little bit and, and go back to maybe the time between like ages 6 and 12 when you're still in Hartford, what was soccer like for you as a, as a kid? Was there, were you part of like the local rec leagues or was there club soccer and, and maybe what role did your, did your dad play if any in, in that? Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, soccer in Connecticut and in the Northeast is a really, uh, interesting microcosm. And it's, it's one of the things that as we talk about the bigger picture of, of us soccer, you have to acknowledge is that soccer in new England is different than soccer in Texas is different than soccer in Washington state. And it doesn't different doesn't mean bad ideally different means we're able to cater to the individual communities uh needs better than than um you know if if you have one kind of one size fits all mandate from you know from uh you know soccer house um but for me my my experience uh is valuable not in my successes but in my failures you know we're so used to talking to uh, people in the game or in, in a, a walk of life who, um, you know, who work through their challenges and made it, or they navigated the gauntlet of youth soccer to, to excel. And my story was the exact opposite. I, I, I love soccer. Uh, in, in the eighties, my father, uh, founded soccer plus, which still exists, uh, as a, as a camp company. Um, and, uh, he had Soccer Plus Goalkeeper School and the Soccer Plus Retail Store. And the retail store was located in, in, um, in Weathersfield, right down the street from, from our house. And at the time, in the, uh, in the 80s, we were, hard to know, but we were either the largest or second largest mail-order soccer company in the, in the country. Um, like, the, like the catalog one, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember to, those when I was a kid. Quarterly catalogs and... and uh, <laughs> This time of year used to be the craziest. This time of, of year used to be uh, Christmas. Christmas orders were were, uh, were huge, and uh, so that's where where I started was um, you know was helping out around the store and and uh, you know playing in the George D Ritchie League. Uh, George Ritchie is uh, in the NSCA or the United Soccer Coaches Hall of Fame and and the Connecticut Soccer Hall of Fame, and he he was one of these people who uh, are a generation of unsung heroes who basically nurtured soccer in this country. And created leagues and created some of the original structure that they couldn't possibly uh, anticipate would get manipulated and and utilized in the way that it has, you know, over the past uh, decade plus. But um, but I, I grew up playing town soccer and then I played travel soccer for for Weathersfield Soccer Club 
And this is where the train went off the tracks for me was I was a September, my birthday, September 11th. So I was just off to, after the birth year cutoff. And at six years old or seven years old, when I went to travel, I wasn't the most skilled player. So what happened was not only was I uh, held to the younger team, I, I lost the opportunity to play with my friends, but the disparity in coaching between the younger team and the, the my age group, uh, my uh, uh, you know uh, class year uh, friends was was pretty significant. And I had a coach who I, I, I've lectured about this all over the country, and I, I you know it's it's a harsh truth, but he made me hate soccer. And so you can imagine growing up in my house, uh, being turned away from the game that significantly. Um, it was it was a, a real significant experience uh, as I look back on it and as I've had conversations with my father in, in years past because um, because we didn't understand these things we didn't understand the inequality of opportunity and and as first time parents you know even as a national staff member and and one of the leading voices in soccer in this country uh, his experience with me shaped his experiences with the other three boys. And my next youngest brother, Drew, uh, became a tremendous beneficiary of it, and we navigated the system much better with him. And he went on to uh, represent the regional team in, in Europe and, and uh, went on to captain San Diego State uh, in the Pac-12 and to the NCAA tournament and uh, you know, has now blossomed into a, into a fantastic coach. So um, – I, I value my perspective, but I, I'm also very aware that my perspective is unique in soccer because most people who get turned away from the game turn away from the game entirely. They don't fight to stay in it, and uh, you know, so I had to I had to fight to to retain relevance, and that led to my the beginning of my coaching career. And and uh, you know, I'm I'm proud of uh, you know the the work that I've done in soccer, both on and off the field at this point. How how long did that you, you use the word hate? And and I hope you don't mind me asking the question like this, but how how long did that hatred for for soccer last? Hey, I, well, okay, let me let me rephrase. I didn't hate soccer. I still love soccer. I still loved watching watching games with dad and and being at the store. I did not look forward to practice, um, and I, I you know the the um, trickle down effect of that is if you're not enjoying playing the game, you're not going to go home and practice on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember one training in particular where we spent an entire two hour session. Uh, the coach was teaching us to essentially, you know, it was essentially teaching us to the, the importance of the professional foul and basically two hours of just slide tackling teammates on through balls. I, I, I shit you not. I mean, it was, it's <laughs> wild to look back on, but you know, he felt like we were giving up too many, you know, too many goals on, on in transition and on breakaways, and he thought the solution of, to that was not to improve our shape, but to improve our ability to take opponents down when they were when they were countering. You know, those types of things that uh, it really soured my my experience. Um, when I came back from Florida uh, into high school. I had uh, developed a little bit more. I'd, I'd taken up a role in in, uh, in goal. I became a goalkeeper, and uh, I enjoyed that. I love the mentality of being a goalkeeper. Um, and 
you know, I, I went on to, to uh, you know, play in high school, uh, had opportunities to play at, uh, some Division three schools, but instead of, um, you know, taking that option, I, I actually took time off between high school and college and went to work for the uh, Washington Freedom in the first Women's Professional League in 2000. And, uh, you know, I, I knew at that time, coming off the World Cup and where we were, that this was a watershed moment for women's soccer and for soccer in this country. Uh, and it has a lot of the same makings of the moment we're in right now, you know, where the, the opportunity exists, the question of whether or not you can capitalize on it, uh, you know, is what has to be navigated. And, you know, I look at that, uh, that inaugural game, April 14, 2001 at RFK between the San Jose Cyber Rays and, and the Washington Freedom, and I'll never forget it. Uh, and the attendance for that game was actually larger than the attendance for Major League Soccer's first game in 1996 in San Jose. Um, you know, so when I hear these, you know, people talk about how there's not a, a market for women's soccer or, uh, you know, it, it's not worth our investment, you know, you have to call bullshit because we've seen it. We know that it's there. People, know. people say there's not a market for soccer in general. So men's yep. or women's. So just as, as a total, people say that there's not a market for soccer, which I find completely absurd. And so you, you kind of referenced um, then that 1996 opening day for MLS and, and those numbers. I, I went back and I did a little bit of research and, and there were crowds bigger in the 70s. In the 70s, 1970s, so we're talking like almost four decades ago, uh, than there were at the very first MLS game between um, L.A. and who was it? L.A. and New York, I think, at the at, at the Coliseum in Los Angeles. And that's a yeah, massive Rose, stadium. Yep, the, Rose yeah, or the, the Rose Bowl, sorry. And it's like that. that's massive. And people are, are, are out there spreading this this lie that soccer is only popular because of MLS or has only grown in popular because of MLS. In reality, if you look at numbers, attendance wise, at least it's almost leveled off or gone backwards in a way since the seventies. We've limited, you know, part, part of this is the, the advent of soccer specific stadiums and the, the, the limited attendance that you have in certain markets where, you know, Kansas City is never going to to top their high water mark from being at Arrowhead, but going to a game and watching the Cauldron do their thing, uh, you know, in a, in a you know Children's Mercy Park is is a crown jewel in in uh, you know American soccer. Uh, we we have those types of metrics are always going to to ebb and flow. Um, but if uh, if any of your listeners haven't seen One Moment in Time on the the seventy seven Cosmos uh, okay, run, yeah. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. Um, but it, you know, I, I actually just, uh, uh, last month bought uh, rock and roll soccer, which is the NASL, uh, history that came out this, this year. We don't do a good job tying ourselves to the history of the game and, uh, and understanding the, the passion that has brewed in the past. And, and, um, you know, we can certainly get to, uh, to bubble over again. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm writing down those, those two. Cause I'm always, I'm always a sucker for a good soccer movie. So you said a moment, a moment in time was the first one. I think it's one moment in time. But one uh, in time. If, if, if you uh, if you Google New York Cosmos documentary, and what uh, was the other one? The the other one is a book called Rock and Roll Soccer. Rock and Roll Soccer. Okay, so that's a book. Got it. Yeah. The 
I'm kind of I'm new, I'm new to and we we kind of spoke when we first got on the phone um, about my my ability to have free time now, and so I, I've been utilizing that free time to kind of look into some stuff that's that's been in the past, and and I was in large part oblivious to to some of the stuff that that the cosmos did throughout the 70s and it really really interests me and i got a chance to have uh to have coffee with one of the front office guys um i want to say the coo of the cosmos recently when i was in san francisco eric, eric stover yeah yep. and um and it, it was awesome like he he kind of he kind of laid out some stuff for me and and what they're up to now and and then I got a chance to hang out with some of the Cosmos fans at the at the pub across the street from the NASL final before we all walked over to the game. And one of them gave me a sticker. And now now the Cosmos sticker is on my laptop. So, uh, and I, I got <laughs> a chance to convert. I am, and I, and I got a chance to meet. Um, I got a chance to meet Rocco actually, Rocco Camiso, in New York at the at the courthouse. And I got a chance to shake his hand, and, and he asked who I was, and I said, "No, oh, my name my name's John." I'm, at that Croatian guy on Twitter. I don't even know why I said that. <laughs> like, like maybe I was just nervous. That I was shaking a billionaire's hand, but it just popped out. I was like, Oh, I'm that Croatian guy on Twitter. And he squeezed my hand even tighter and he pulled me in closer and he, and he, I can't say what he whispered in my ear, but, but he, he knew exactly who I was. And I felt like, oh, Holy shit. Like this guy knows who I am. So that was kind of cool. Uh, but yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a recent cosmos convert for sure. The, the, you know, the, the reason that I feel such a, a draw to the history is because, because I was, I was brought up that way. You know, I've been going to the NSCA and now the United Soccer Coaches convention since the, the mid nineties, since I was in high school and we would arrive at the convention and, and for, you know, the majority of those, you know, 20 plus years, my, my father was my roommate at the, at the convention <laughs> and we would go to get our badges and, you know, there, you know, standing uh, there to greet everybody would be the red aprons. And, you know, most of the people at the convention, even by the 2000s, had no idea who these who these guys were, guys like Irv Schmidt uh, and Walter Barr. Um, but my father, uh, as a product of Springfield College, which as a as a small school in Springfield, Massachusetts, has a disproportionate influence in our game and, and the ties to. Uh, to sports in general, but um, Irv Schmidt was his was his coach there, and uh, you know I, I really understood from a young age the the significance of uh, the pioneers, and and I see it even more now uh, with the you know forthcoming twentieth anniversary of the of the ninety nine championship in in twenty nineteen. And the role that that those players played, because you will not find a college player or an NWSL player or a current national team player who isn't there because of uh, the modeling of the generation before and showing them what's possible. Um, A thought that just popped into my head was... And and I think you you've spoken about this or written about this before is that there's, we we have a lack of of actual women's coaches at the top of the women's game. How how many and it's and the reason why I bring that up is you see a lot of ex men's player or ex men's professional players turn into coaches and and you can kind of see that throughout MLS, but you don't see that in in the women's side of the game. Why do you think that is? Well, so the the history of um 
of women in coaching roles is uh, a little bit of a of an arc, um, kind of an inverted uh, um, parabola. And the, the reason why is because in the in the seventies, uh, prior to Title IX, there were a significant number of women uh, coaching in college and, and coaching in um, uh, you know, in places where women were playing, obviously the women's game was much, much smaller at that point. Uh, but the percentage of female coaches was higher. Then title nine comes in, in, uh, in 1972 and throughout the, the eighties and nineties, what we see is, uh, men flocking to the women's game after their playing career is over because the money was better in the women's game in many cases than it was in the men's game, um, in, in, in the college game for, for sure. Uh, because you have, uh, you know, big time football and the, the resources and, and, uh, balancing out of that is, is women's soccer and women's volleyball and, and softball and, and things like that. So, um, you know, you probably had your first six digit, uh, you know, coaches, uh, you know, uh, $100,000 plus coaches in this country being paid in women's soccer, um, you know, in places like the SEC, uh, where, you know, where, uh, um, you know, those programs have, have flourished and, and you now see, um, you know, South Carolina in the, in the final four, uh, you know, this weekend. Is that, is that happening at UCSB? Is the women's? Uh, it's, it's happening. No, they're playing at, uh, Orlando city stadium. That's uh, right. Okay. In, uh, in Orlando. Um, and I think it's, you know, look, the, 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 the failure here is the awareness that because the women, in terms of the growth of the game and the growth of the coaching administrative ranks, are behind the men for obvious reasons, that that they require additional attention, additional nurture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there should be whether it's price incentives or um, you know women's only uh, only courses. Uh, you know, one of the things that I I will always take note of is you look at these these pictures from coaching courses, whether it's the the E D C B or A, and the the disparity between males and females is significant. The disparity between white males and everyone else is significant. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm really uh, glad you mentioned that because that's that's something else that's been brought up not a, a lot lately, which I think it should it should get more attention is is the lack of minority coaches in in the men's side of the game at the top on the top of the men's game right and yeah. oh. somebody I, I forget who it was but somebody sent me a link that was, was to an article uh, pointing out the fact that there's there is not one african-american coach in, in mls and which is mind-boggling right i mean it's it it's you know it, it and we have to acknowledge the, the biases i mean i I, I don't know uh, Anthony Hudson that well. Um, you know, I, I watched New Zealand in their in their playoff and 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 whatnot. But here's a uh, you know a 38 I think 38 year old coach, 36 year old coach. He's 36. Jim Curtin's 38. So you got a 36 year old coach who uh, you know has very limited club experience. Who's getting the nod? Who's getting this opportunity? And, you know, I'm a beneficiary of nepotism. He, he comes from a, you know, soccer legacy, um, you know, but, but the, the fact that, that a club goes down that route instead of, uh, you know, at least considering, and I know there's, there's scenarios here where, uh, you know, uh, African-American coaches, Latino coaches aren't even being considered for these jobs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
if if that was happening, then I, I would say, you know, fair play, take the best person available. It's the same thing on the men women's coach thing. Look, you know, I, I see both sides of this because I am absolutely an advocate for more female coaches, but I'm also an advocate for my father. And, you know, when it comes down to it, you should hire the best person for the position. Uh, if that best, if the best person for the position is a, is a male, then, then that's okay. That's fine. But if things are equal, then, then give the opportunity to someone who hasn't had it before. But the problem is not only in hiring, it's rehiring is female coaches who get fired or have an appointment are significantly less likely to get another opportunity. It's and career, it's the same it's, thing with, it's with career over. Cole. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the fact that Lisa Cole has not been, uh, you know, picked up by a, another NWSL team after her run uh, with the breakers is, is shocking, but it's not shocking when you, when you dissect this and you look at, uh, at these things. And this is every level of the game. And it, it, it extends up to the, uh, you know, to the board of U.S. soccer. U.S. soccer board has, uh, you know, 17 members on there, including the, the past president who's a, a non-voting member. Uh, so 16 voting members. Four of those 16 members are women. One, Angela Hughes is on the Athletes Council. So you have two men and one woman on the Athletes Council. The other three women are independent directors, Donna Shalala, Val Ackerman and, uh, and Lisa Conroy. So that tells me that we're not seeing female uh, executives and administrators pushed up through the youth ranks. We're not seeing them pushed up through the pro ranks and, uh, and we're not seeing them pushed up through the adult or, or amateur ranks. So it's a problem and there are solutions to it, but the biggest solution is the people in positions of power have to decide that, the best use of their power is to provide a voice to those who have been been marginalized through the process. What are some of the solutions that that you believe would be worthy of putting into practice? Well, that's a that's a laundry list. Yeah. Um, well, there's the, a lot of ideas out there, so that's why I, I I like to ask people like what's what are some of their ideas because everybody has an opinion, especially on on Twitter. We're kind of of the stance like, okay, just let, let's open up this pyramid on the men's and the women's side and let people actually compete and merit their weight in, into positions and into the top or, or to the bottom. And so you see a lot of these these coaches that you know are rehired and blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, well, there's one way to get rid of people that aren't good at their job is to, is to let people compete and take, take that job from them. Well, this isn't an American problem. I mean, right? Absolutely. We, we, you know, this week alone, looking at the uh, Everton West Ham game and Moyes and and Allardyce on the the you know the bench, we we see the yeah. problem in in England too. The reason that these decisions get made, the reason that we recycle coaches or um, you know or or are less aggressive in our hiring practices is fear. That's the only reason. The only reason that that. Uh, you know, MLS resists an open pyramid or, or promotion relegation is fear that it's going to damage their business model, fear that it's going to damage their businesses, fear that the value of their organization is, is going to decrease. You know, it's the same thing when you're when you're hiring, hiring a coach, you know, is there is there a belief? Are you hiring this person because you can you believe that they can create a shared vision and achieve at a level that exceeds the level that you're at now? Or are you hiring a coach because they're going to 
be able to coach the team and you're going to put out 11 players every game and you're going to be competitive. It, it comes back to, to ambitions. So, you know, my ambitions for U.S. soccer are for us to, to lead the world in every imaginable category. So to be World Cup champions on the men's side, to be World Cup champions on the women's side, to be competing for youth world championships, uh, to lead the world in good governance and, and ethics in soccer, to lead the, the country in understanding the role that, that, uh, uh, that sports and soccer in particular can play in breeding healthy humans and healthy lifestyle and creating a lifelong passion in the game. And the, there's a group that I've done work with uh, led by Tom Ferry called the Aspen Institute and Project Play that, that uh, have put out tremendous data and great information um, on these fronts. But the, the solutions, and I, I have written a lot about this, and I, I write kind of in long form because the solutions are not simple solutions. The solutions are complex solutions. But it has to be a comprehensive vision that is shared by not only the people in the soccer house or not only the people in the federation, but throughout the soccer culture and community in this country uh, where we compete on the field, but we also, you know, I, I, you always see it this time of year in, the college, in college soccer. Uh, I, I coached with UCLA a little bit. And you see the, you know, them in Stanford in, in the tournament this weekend, and the other coaches will, will uh, tweet back the pack, right, backing the conference. It's the same thing here. We've got to, you know, yeah, you want to win every, every tournament you play and every game you play in. But it's okay to, to acknowledge that when you don't win, if you played well, if you competed well, if you competed fairly, that you've done your part to enhance the level of that competition and that quality. And this is what the ECNL did. The ECNL organized a group of clubs. It started with 40 of us. And the, the mission of that group was simply to create an environment to make the development of, of girls and young women uh, more consistent and to improve the quality in every aspect of the competition. That, that, has, that mindset has to extrapolate now to every aspect of soccer. If you're asking me about priorities, the, the priority has to be entry into the game. Whether that's the stuff that Tom Byers talking about, and uh, giving kids a strong foundation at home uh, from you know age one to age five, uh, but you know even if you're not willing to take that step, we have to look at the half a million kids in in AYSO. Uh, why, first of all, why is that number so small given the the population of the country? But also on an individual basis, if you put your kid into AYSO, what's your level of confidence that as a result of that program, they're going to develop as a person and as a player and be prepared to take the next step, given that they're willing to invest themselves in it? Sorry, that was a long answer. No, it's okay, man. It's okay. And one of the things you mentioned was en entry into the game. And, and you can you can actually, depending on how you want to spend that, you could, you could spend that in other ways too. So it's like, okay what what opportunities does your community have to be involved in the larger the bigger picture of american soccer does your community have entry to the game and and the thing that pops up in my brain in my in my brain is i'm between san francisco and la my community when i was growing up really didn't have entry into the mainstream game club soccer didn't exist here when i was growing up 
I, I was on a soccer island and I can only imagine what it's like for, for other communities that are even more disconnected than, than where I was growing up. So en- entry to the game, I think you, you can redefine that in, or repackage that in so many different ways. You're, well, you're 100% right on that. And you know, look how narrowly we missed or how fortunate we were that Clint Dempsey you know, was able to walk the path that he did. I mean, he grew up two and a half hours from Dallas in the middle of nowhere. And he's gone on to be, you know, whatever, a top five or a top 10, you know, American uh, soccer player of, of all time. Uh, you know, you see someone like Sofia Huerta coming out of Idaho. That, you know, this is something that hasn't been brought up by a single person during this whole discussion. But rural soccer and, and small community soccer, uh, you know, is as, as big an issue uh, as it is urban because you don't know where your national team players or your your superstars are going to come from yeah eric in our interview he mentioned like you can you can organize as many scouting events and invite as many teams and and whatever as you want you can hire as many scouts as you want but that's that's not going to be the most effective way to find those players that are in those small communities those soccer deserts those people that are those players that are in idaho or iowa or whatever it's at Soccer Plus, we, we referred to it as the individual player pathway, right? No two players go through the game and experience the game the same way. Even if you played, even if you had twins who played on the same team, uh, you know, throughout their lives, they are experiencing the game in, in different ways based on the feedback that they get, the coaches, their their own personality, and, and this is true on and off the field. So providing as much support to as many individuals on their soccer pathway has to be a part of this shared vision and and part of this goal. And that means, you know, parents, that means coaches, that means players, that means supporters, that means administrators. Uh, it's, it, it is, it has to be a unifying vision and, uh, and that's hard. Right. I mean, we know, you know, look at our country. We know how polarizing, you know, everything is and creating consensus and, and shared vision is hard. But the choice is do it and ascend to our, you know, to to a place where we can be uh, amongst the soccer elite or don't do it. And we can continue to, you know, to uh, to spin our wheels and. You know, maybe we'll we'll develop some great players. Maybe we won't. Maybe things will grow. But th- this idea that uh, that there's a manifest destiny or a natural ascension and and a league is always going to thrive is a false narrative. And this is this is the the the, the disconnect between Major League Soccer and reality is. The reason that MLS is, is successful now is because of the failures of soccer and the successes of soccer in the past. Um, but the NFL, you know, had this, this mindset of ascendancy throughout the 90s and 2000s. And, you know, the TV deals got bigger and the, the contracts got bigger and everyone was making more money. And you look at the NFL right now and because it was built on, on a uh, foundation of sand, it's, it's eroded. And that can happen to soccer if we're not deliberate about striving to be better. And this is where promotion relegation fits into the conversation is we have to acknowledge and appreciate the investment of, of these pioneer owners in MLS. We know that we would not have a top flight league today if it wasn't for Lamar Hunt and Phil Anschutz. 
I have no issue with that. But what people are failing to recognize is that the transition from the system we have today to the system that many people can envision is a negotiation. It's a negotiation. There's a value to that investment, and they need to be made whole. But what does that look like? Is it you know, a 25-year head start where you, know, you basically have had this opportunity and you're in a top position? Is, is, it, is it the cash uh, equivalencies? But, but that's where it has to be looked at. It's, it, it's not a question of if, but when and how. And I think that, um, you know, I know Eric talks about golden parachutes and, and he's right, but the first hurdle to overcome is the, the perspective that Don Garber represented in the uh, Sports Business Journal meeting this week, that it's impossible. It's not impossible. We, we've done things that are significantly harder than this, but it has to be done deliberately and with, with uh, you know, understanding of all the perspectives in the room. Based off of the the stuff that you've write or sorry I can't talk. Based off the stuff that you've written recently and and some of the stuff that you're mentioning today and and, and talking about the history of U.S. soccer, women's soccer, men's soccer, you obviously have been aware that this is a kind of a, a fractured system for quite a while. When, when did you when did you realize that maybe the the road wasn't as as straightforward as as people want it to seem like? Uh, so in 2003, uh, my father expanded the Soccer Plus companies to include um, a youth club that, that went on to be one of the founding members in the ECNL. Um, when I finished school, I came back and uh, for the duration of my time in, in Connecticut, my role in that organization grew. And as my role grew, my awareness of the... Uh, the lack of common sense that we engage with so much of the time is, is, is a, an unnecessary hurdle. We have, we have to engage in uh, a pruning of bylaws and, um, and the game at, at all levels to the point where if you ask the question, does this make sense? The answer is yes, more than it's no, and I'm not sure you could say that today. Um, it, it, in many ways, youth soccer in Connecticut broke me, you know, because I am such an optimist, and because we were trying to do things uh, the right way, and we were pushing uh, an agenda to rethink the way some things were being done. We became targets of tremendous criticism uh, and, and outright lies. Um, and it was, it was sad to see because anyone who's ever worked with my father or knows my father knows that there is, there is not a single person in this game, in this country, who had more integrity than he did. He would rather fail doing the right thing than, than compromise that core value. Um, and I'll give you a quick story. Uh, one of those first years that I was back, I was coaching our, our U18 team, our U18 girls team with him. And uh, 
we were playing the uh, we were playing CFC, who uh, was the best team, best girls club in the state at that point. Uh, we'd go on to be one of the other founding members of the ECNL. And we were beating their U18 team, which was much more talented and much more athletic than we were, uh, 2-1 late in the game. And I'm standing off towards the end of the bench, and the ball comes out of play. We're on one of these high school uh, turf fields, and the ball comes uh, towards me. And I didn't move, but I didn't stop the ball. And the ball ran past me to, to uh, hit the track and then went all the way to the fence. And I thought I was doing the right thing, you know, managing the game, delaying the game, you know, we're, we're near the end. And my father kind of stormed to the end of the bench and he looked at me and he said, we're going to win this game and we're going to win it the right way. And so I never, I never did that again. Um, but that, that's how he was. And, uh, and through this process of youth soccer, I mean, his name got dragged through the mud. It, it was, uh, you know, it was demoralizing. Can you recall any, any specific events or um, times where he did kind of get dragged through the mud or you got dragged through the mud or the club got dragged through the mud? What, what, what stands out specifically? Well, the, especially uh, in the first couple of years, um, we didn't win as many games as, you know, I guess other people perceived that a world champion should win. Um, you know, and so the the concept that we fought the most was the winning versus development concept. And our our policy on it was always um, we are not the final stop on these players' soccer destination. So while the games we play matter, state cup games or or ECNL games, while they matter in the moment, in the, in the context of these players' careers and in the context of soccer history, it's another youth game. So let's keep things in perspective. Let's, let's elevate the discourse. And so, uh, you know, what we got into was, um, you know, we spent a lot of time with parent education. We spent a lot of time uh, developing the, the, the total athlete. And it's taken you know, years and years, but I, I am still getting messages from players, uh, from our club who, you know, are in college now or out of college. We've got, uh, you know, one player who's coaching, um, former players coaching over overseas professionally in Sweden. You know, the, the system works if you can keep that perspective in the moment. Um, but in the moment, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, uh, you know, the short term benefits of saying whatever you have to say to convince a parent to come play for this club that has won more games is is trumping the the vision of what we can do in the longer term, uh, you know, careers and lives of, of uh, you know, these players, because most of them aren't going to be professionals. Many of them aren't going to play college, you know, but it doesn't mean that, that that's not that their soccer experience is not as significant as, you know, Christian or, or uh, Mal Pugh or anybody else. So you, you kind of mentioned that 2003-ish was when you maybe started to see some of the fractures in the U.S. soccer system. When, when, did, when did you become vocal about it? When did, you start, when did you start telling people like, no, this is wrong and we need to fix this or I don't agree with this? In 2008, uh, my father 
was passed over one of several times uh, as the national team coach to reclaim the the uh, uh, the women's national team uh, heading into the the Beijing Olympics, um, kind of as a, a, a consolation. Um, they gave him the U20 team, uh, the, the uh, uh, U20 U.S. Uh, women's team, and that would be his last international appointment. Um, but when he went to do that, I became the CEO of U.S. Soccer. I'm uh, sorry, of, of Soccer Plus. Of our, Oof, of I was going to uh, say that's a that's an escalation. <laughs> yeah, that was that, that would have been this. Well, becoming a CEO at 26 is never uh, is is never easy. Uh, doing it in the midst of a, of a financial crash is even harder. Um, but uh, you know, for me at that point, I also had a much better vision of the soccer community uh, through our lens of camps and and uh, and, and uh, academies and clinics and goalkeeping specifically. Uh, through the club, through our youth system there. Uh, we ran a 501c3 not-for-profit um, in inner city Hartford. So we were working with underserved communities there. Uh, and then we also, in 2008, launched a consultancy company where we went out and worked with uh, town and, and rec clubs uh, around the country. And at, at that point, you know, traveling and sitting in with these boards and talking to coaches and talking to parents and talking to players, it, you know, for me, the the clarity of the scale of the problem, uh, you know, came into focus, and, and understanding that this was not just happening in Connecticut, which because every town in Connecticut had their own club, felt parochial. But it wasn't just happening in Connecticut; it was happening everywhere in different forms. But the the system was was um, not just fractured. It, it's Fractured would be better. Fractured would mean that we could fuse it back together and 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 put these pieces back together. It, it's it's an it's an ecosystem. It's a body, and there was a disease running rampant in the body. And it wasn't just a cancer. It wasn't like we just had people in the soccer house who were taking bribes and we could cut out that cancer and and move on with it. It was like a blood disease that was infecting, you know everybody you know the 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 craziness of the 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 iconic soccer parents screaming on the sideline the power hungry you know club president or state association executive director the the coach who now believes that their U11 team is so important that they will do whatever is required to win even at the expense of you know their integrity and the the, uh, the development of their players and the reputation of their clubs, and and all of this leads to the distrust that we we face right now. I mean, you know, trust and respect and integrity. I mean, these are not soccer specific, you know, issues. These are issues of leadership. They're issues of leadership that we see in our country and around the world, but we can also show through soccer and through soccer in this country that that engaging in the process and establishing good governance and est- establishing good pathways for everyone in the game, we can heal ourselves. And if we can heal soccer in this country, then we know that soccer on a global level can be healed. We know that governance uh, you know, at the state level and in, in the federal government, it can be healed, but we have to model it. We've got to you know, soccer is a language. It's a universal language. It's a significantly powerful language. Um, but, but it's a vehicle that if we 
if we access the power of soccer, we will change the, the trajectory of the country and of the planet. That, that's, how, that's how significant it is to me. And that's why I do what I do. I think it's important what you just said. If we access the power of soccer, that number one tells me that soccer has so much power that we're not utilizing right now. And and I think that that is an important thing to kind of highlight. And and you could boil that down to the youth. You could you could say that it's whether it's in college or high school soccer's power. But soccer in general has power in this country, and we need to unlock it or unleash it. And now it's. It, I, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it, you know, the model for this is, is team. You know, the model for it is understanding high-performing teams and how they're, they're assembled and how they function. And one of the things that, that jumped out at me from the John Mata podcast was uh, his talk about the, the, the soccer family and his relationship with the, with the women's national team in the late 90s. And there's two things. Number one, soccer was a lot smaller then. you know, soccer was, uh, you know, much more niche. And because it was smaller, you were more connected to more people. But as it's grown and as I travel and as I spend more time, you know, at an outlaws tailgate or at the convention or wherever it is, by speaking the same language as everyone else who loves soccer, what we have to realize is that the power is tied in everybody you know, rowing in the same direction. And that's why that shared vision becomes, becomes so significant. It also means marginalizing the voices that seek to instill that fear or, or destroy the bonds. Because the reason that soccer has become fragmented or has become a power struggle is because there is a tremendous amount of greed and there's a tremendous amount of ego that, uh, that has proliferated the system. And, you know, we have too many people who get too excited about their little fiefdom of whatever that looks like, whether it's their club or their uh, state association. And those people need to, to either get on board or get out of the way because, um, you know, the change is coming. Well, the change is coming, man. I'm, I'm hopeful for it. And it seems like you're hopeful for it. Um. We, we have to be optimistic, right? I mean, you can't you can't engage in this every day and, and dive as deep into it as we have. And we do, if you don't have belief that, that through the darkness, uh, you know, there are shining moments ahead for us soccer. Our brightest days are unequivocally ahead of us. Um, but the time frame for those days depends on the decisions, uh, that we make over the course of the, the next several months, the next several years. Um, but I, I think you have you have to be optimistic about it, and you have to you have to fight for it. I mean, the reason that I the reason that I engage and the reason that I I choose to have a voice in this discussion is not particularly personal. It's it's my way. I've I have been blessed by this game, absolutely blessed, and it has never codified more significantly uh, than the memorial weekend we did for my father this summer. And the, the people who, who flew in and, and came from all over the world um, to, to be a part of that, of that weekend. And I have learned from every single one of them. I am the beneficiary of that knowledge and these experiences. Um, 
and I, and I love it, but, uh, but I also feel a tremendous responsibility to lower the ladder down to people who, um, you know, who haven't been as fortunate as I have. And, you know, the, the, uh, the ability for us to help them up the ladder and diversify the views of, uh, our boards and our, our organizational structures will only enhance the opportunities that, uh, that exist ahead of us. I, I want to say one thing and, and the reason if, if I'm just being honest too, the reason why I actually had an interest in interviewing you was for that specific reason is that your voice and your message about the, the diversity is important. And I think if there's, if there's one thing that, that, really makes your voice stand out is that nobody else is talking about that right now. And that's why it's so important that somebody is somebody like you is talking about the diversity issue that that's happening or that's not happening to, to be honest. And and that's, that's really why I, I, I found your, your, your writing and, and what you've been saying on, on social media to be so interesting. It, it's, it's hard, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's hard because if you're the privileged group, right? I mean, you know, so much of, of the national conversation right now centers around the power of the white male in every aspect of, of society. And so, you know, the, the theory here is that me advocating for uh, more diverse voices, for, for better representation in every aspect of soccer, uh, you know, limits my abilities, right? Or limits my my aspirations or what, um, you know, what may be in my best interest, but my aspirations are for us as a nation to continue to win world cups on the women's side and to win the the men's world cup and to, to, you know, win Olympics. Uh, you know, the next big event on the men's side here that we haven't talked about is the Olympics coming up and we've missed three of the last four. Um, so that needs to be a, you know, to be a significant uh, priority going into 2020, but, when your aspirations are bigger than yourself, when you recognize that, that the movement we're talking about here is so much more significant than, than me, again, it comes from my understanding of teams and highly functioning teams, is if it's not about me, if it's about the team and the team goals, then, then all we're doing is creating fertile land for everyone to, to get back to what you were talking about earlier, uh, to engage in that meritocracy. And I know the, the amount of work that I'm willing to do and have done, uh, again, not as a, a great former player, but as someone who's engaged in the game and loved the game and gotten to coach the game at, at every level, um, you know, I'll, I'll take my chances. I, I have enough confidence uh, to, you know, to put myself out there against a truly uh, diverse and balanced field. And if, if I'm not the best, then it'll motivate me uh, to, to, um, you know, access the parts of my, uh, you know, my coaching or, or whatever it is that I'm trying to do to be better. Uh, and that's how we feed each other is to, you know, to, to raise the standards, the standards have to be higher. I mean, you know, we, we are a celebration of mediocrity. We're a celebration of because, because it's fun, it's good enough at the, at the recreational level. No, no fun should be the given. Of course it's gotta be fun. If it's, you know, my father used to say, if it's not fun, why would anybody do it? Right? Of course it's gotta be fun. 
having it be fun and having the opportunity to develop better players are not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, and there is a lot of work. There's a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. One thing I disagreed with Eric, uh, tremendously about was this idea that in eight months we can solve the problems of, of us soccer. This is, you know, this is not a, an, an eight month problem. It's not an eight year problem. This is a marathon with no end. You either are getting it right and you're enhancing our, our ability to be successful in developing world-class players and in developing world-class teams or we're, or we're standing still. There are no, there are no uh, other options. Um, so, yeah, yeah. That, that, that was an interesting point in my interview with him and I probably should have uh, followed up with him about that because one thing that we've kind of pointed out is that it doesn't have to change tomorrow and, and making like a big change, like, like instituting a promotion relegation, for instance, you can't just, Eric can't just win in February and say, all right, guys, promotion relegation starts this season, 2018 in, in MLS. Like, no, that's, yep. that's, that's not realistic. Right. But to go back to what you mentioned earlier, if you start the negotiations tomorrow, if that process starts tomorrow, that then you're on the right track, but delaying that, that, that conversation or delaying the announcement that that promotion relegation will happen in the future. That's, that's the problem. We can't delay any longer. And, and you mentioned giving MLS a 25 year head start or giving owners a 25 year head start. I don't want people to, to misunderstand that. So you're saying, or maybe I misunderstood it. You're not saying give them another 25 years. You're saying they've already had 20 years, 21 years, 22 years, whatever it is, give them another few years, four or five years, and then it starts. Yeah, I think I, on that particular point, I think realistically, uh, you know, an optimal time for us to move to a truly tiered system would be 2027 after we've hosted the World Cup in 2026. And presumably we've sort we've cleaned our house and we're functioning at a much higher resonance, a much higher level uh, than we are now. Um, it, it is continuing to reward the investment of these these existing owners, um, but it also gives them, uh, you know, essentially, you know, nine years to uh, to de to divest to find an, another owner, uh, you know, to to take that risk. Um, but you know, you see the proliferation of American owners in the Premiership, in uh, in you know, pl- even much more closed markets like uh, like Italy and and. Um, uh, and Spain now. So the idea that there wouldn't be investors interested in, uh, in these, in these clubs, you know, presuming you can move them from franchises to clubs, which is a, you know, a logistical and legal issue as well as a, you know, a a motivation, a desire to do it. Um, you know, I, I simply don't accept that. I, I don't accept that, that, uh, that there won't, that there will not be more investment because, um, we've moved to to an, an, a more evolved model. Do I think that that uh, that we would be where we are today if MLS had started with promotion relegation? Absolutely not. I think that 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 would have been potentially disastrous. But I think that the solution for American soccer going forward in you know twenty twenty seven or beyond is different than the solution it was in nineteen ninety four, and it'll be different in twenty fifty seven. You know, but. Uh, you know, we had a, a, a saying uh, at Soccer Plus, which is evolve or die. Uh, 
You know, we started Beautiful. in 1982. And, you know, if we did not evolve as a soccer company, and there were times when we did not, um, then we were, we were falling behind. And, uh, you know, what part of what made it hard to uh, maintain the, the uh, organization at the standard that we had from the outset uh, was the proliferation of college camps and ID clinics and, uh, you know, club super Y league and clubs wanting to have their players for 12 months. But I will tell you right now that there is a direct line between the U S national team goalkeeper, uh, dilemma on both the men's and women's side where you have one or two, maybe elite goalkeepers, but not the pool of goalkeepers that we became accustomed to and the decrease in goalkeepers investing in themselves in environments like soccer plus goalkeeper school or Dr. Macknick's number one camps, which in the, in the, you know, early eighties were the only option for goalkeepers. Well, by having goalkeepers play as many games as they're playing now, they're training less and they are learning less because in a game, a goalkeeper is going to touch the ball 70% of the time with their feet. Their development has to be looked at differently than the development of our field players, you know, and, and nobody's really talking about it. We know that goalkeeping is an issue, but the, the solutions for our goalkeepers seem to just be floating out there in the ether somewhere. And if we're lucky, we'll stumble upon them. And if we're not, you and I are going to be on the podcast again eight years from now talking about how, you know, our goalkeeping is a huge problem and, and uh, you know, what the hell are we going to do about it? I, I, I really liked what you said about the evolve or die. I think that's, that's very important for people to realize. And, and if, if U.S. soccer misses this a chance or misses this chance that we have right now to evolve, I, I, I do think that it, it's not going to be the death of U.S. soccer, but it's going to be a, a, a massive step in the in the wrong direction. We we feel the changes of tide. We feel the you know the the uh, the, the tides changing the, the the change of you know uh, change in the air. Um, but the truth is, we're not certain that this is going to be the year of change. Yep. Um, if it's not this year, then 2026 will almost certainly yield more significant change. Um, but, uh, you know, I, if this is what change looks like, I'm a little bit disappointed, right? What do you mean? You know, uh, look at our, look at our presidential candidates. We've got, uh, I, I, I say Sunil's running. If you ask for nominations, you're a candidate to me. Um, so, so you have, you have eight candidates, seven of which are white males. The fact that we do not have a single female who is engaged in this process is a massive, massive red flag to me. And I, I don't know how much power I'll have to be able to make this a reality, but it is absolutely my vision that in four years, regardless of who wins uh, in, in February, that we will have not only a female candidate, but a strong, uh, powerful, unifying female uh, voice in this in this discussion because they're they're too important in, in our development and, and you know evolve or die right you see it all you have to do is 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 follow sports to know that it's happening women being hired in, as assistant coaches in the NBA you know the NFL's failure to evolve 
has led to this attendance drop and and TV uh, you know TV issue. It has nothing to do with with anthem protests or anything like that. It has everything to do with the NFL doesn't inspire excitement or or fun, right? They're the non-fun league. They're the the league that you know gives you a, a longer suspension for inflated balls and for beating your wife. The the NFL is the is the canary in the in the in the coal mine for us, and and unfortunately, we have followed a lot of the NFL playbook due to, to Don Garber's uh, experiences there and the number of MLS owners who are involved in that league. So the hope has to be that they look at MLS and say, we don't want the same thing to happen to MLS that's happening to the NFL. Um, and you know, so far, our, our players have, relative to other professional athletes, been pretty good about behaving themselves and and being good citizens, but I still think it, it could be better. Um, you know, but, but the NFL has, you know, been wrong on the concussion issue. They've been wrong on, uh, you know, I spent the last five years working on fields. They've been wrong on, on fields. They've been, they have systematically gotten it wrong to the point where the, the support eroded. If soccer gets to that point, this, we're going to look back at, failing to qualify for the World Cup as the good old days. Um, now, I don't believe that's the path that we're going to end up on, but we have to acknowledge that it is a potential outcome if we don't choose to, to, uh, you know, to invest intelligently and to, to evolve ourselves. I agree 100%. Um, I, I, I got to get going, um, but I want to make sure I ask you, is, is there anything else that – you uh, you plan on writing about I guess number one, um, but any, anything else you want to get out to to the people listening? Uh, well, I, I've I've written uh, the first two parts on this uh, development series. So I talked about uh, you know parent education and early uh, you know early childhood uh, uh, access and and education into the into the game. Part two, I've talked a little bit about AYSO. Now I'm going to tackle uh, in the next couple parts. Uh, the, the pay for play model and some of the things that we see as players are getting into the, the eight to, to uh, 18 range. And then I, I want to talk a little bit about high school soccer and college soccer as well uh, and how they fit into our, uh, to our puzzle. Um, I've already written, I'm going to post a, a, a piece on medium uh, next week about my experience in synthetic fields because, you know, Turf fields are obviously a hot button topic and the amount of uh, misinformation and disinformation that's out there. Uh, I want to, I want to, uh, you know, bring to light a little bit on that. And, and we've spent a lot of, um, a lot of energy over the past five years, dramatically changing people's perspective of what a synthetic turf soccer field looks like and performs like. Um, so I, I want to, I'm going to write about that. And, uh, you know, we'll see. There's so much news happening on a, on a daily basis. Um, you know, I'll keep, uh, um, you know, I'll keep uh, seeing what inspires me. But I do want to uh, give one plug before we go, uh, John, if that's okay. Um, the Soccer Parenting Summit, SoccerParenting.com uh, is coming up in early December. Uh, you know, this is a group, if, if you're a coach listening, um, you know, this is a group that we have failed to engage. The, I, the solution to dealing with parents is not to shun parents. It is to, to engage them, to get them bought into your vision and, uh, and to empower them, 
to be better at their role in their their child's development. So uh, Sky Eddie Bruce, who's uh, put that together, has a a tremendous panel assembled. So uh, uh, um, SoccerParentingSummit.com. Thanks, John. Yeah, no, it was it's cool. I have an episode coming out with Sky probably next week. I don't know if this episode will get out to people before uh, before the actual parenting summit, but I think she she'll have access to it for people that want to get it. So yeah, that'll be that'll be posted up in in perpetuity uh, for people who buy the the sideline pass. So yeah. uh, she reveals it in real time, but you can go back afterwards and access the sessions. Yeah, no, Gary and I had a chance to meet her when we were in Colorado. We were in Denver for a, a marketing summit, actually. So it's something soccer, un soccer related, and somebody had mentioned that to to Sky, like, oh, there's another soccer person in the crowd. And so she came and found Gary and I, and we ended up talking, talking, talking. And I think we went and got dinner or drinks or something one of the nights. And we've just stayed in contact with her. She's a, she, she's really awesome. And, and in the podcast episode I recorded with her, she actually tells a really cool story about your dad. Um, and so I, I think you'll enjoy listening to her. And, and she, she gives a lot of credit to your dad for her development as well as a, as a coach and, and, and just a human. So I think well, the, the, uh, the, the soccer plus community, uh, you know, having gone on since, since 82, uh, we joke that soccer plus is everywhere and, uh, you know, it's, uh, sky is a, a tremendous, uh, you know, representative of his methodology and, and, uh, and legacy. And, uh, I'm glad you guys had a chance to, to meet with her and I'm looking forward to listening to that podcast. Absolutely. Um, all right, man. Well, I'll, uh, I'll be in contact and I'll let you know when, when all this is going out and I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, John. Have a great rest of your day. All right, brother. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. Thank you to Anthony DeChico for coming on the show. Thank you guys for being part of the show and being part of the 343 community. If you want to learn more about the 343 coaching program, the program that powers this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com to find out all of the information about the free seven-week course and the premium course that we offer. So all of that is available at 343coaching.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you guys here next time on the 343 Podcast.